Six Degrees of Francis Bacon, Episode 1 Having recently returned from seeing the Magna Carta at the British Museum, it would be a fitting tribute to start our first episode of Six Degrees of Francis Bacon, with King John in the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta was essentially a peace treaty that was drawn up by Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton in 1215, for King John and his dissatisfied barons. Within this treaty, or Charter of Peace, it promised various things as a settlement, such as upholding that swift justice should be applied, and at the same time that no unlawful imprisonment were to happen for the barons. Very swiftly, neither side would adhere to the Charter in its terms. It would take the death of John, and further revisions, ratifications and reissues, before it became part of statute law in 1297, under the reign of Edward I. Interestingly, the document itself had little impact on the immediate reign of John, and his successor. In fact, a few months after the seal was placed on the Magna Carta, both sides broke their promises, and it was annulled by the Pope soon afterwards. Yet what's more important is that in many ways, it was more symbolic as an influential document. A fitting statement to make clear as it is being re-evaluated on its 800th anniversary. Magna Carta has been mentioned, included or referenced in so many important political movements and groundbreaking works of political literature over the past 800 years. Funnily enough, only three clauses remain on statute currently in England and Wales. Yet that should not dim the significance of such a document, for it has shaped and moulded the English constitution today. No free man shall be imprisoned, but by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land, is one such clause that is a fundamental tenet of our laws today. The king, however, that fixed his seal to the document, has throughout history been vilified for his actions. Matthew Paris was an early chronicler of John, who cited how he had lost land because of his laziness. Victorian chroniclers and historians like J.R. Green likewise paint John negatively, citing how his punishments were cruel, the starvation of children, the crushing of old men under the copses of lead, his court was a brothel, hell is spoiled by the fouler presence of King John. Yet conversely, Tudor historians and writers portrayed King John in a more sympathetic light. He retains his ruthless manner, but is credited for successes like standing up to the Pope in Rome, for instance, in Shakespeare's play The Life and Death of King John. This is insightful historiography of John. However, it has to be examined itself, to question how far the comments can be legitimised. Paris, for instance, wrote much of his interpretation of John long after his death, and was not even an adult when John ruled. Much of his criticisms are based on commentaries of other monks and his fellow contemporaries. It is with the Victorian era in the 19th century that we really start to see a resurgence in studies and interest in John, and according to historian Paul Sturvant, it was Victorians like J.R. Green that made John the pantomime villain. To the Victorians, John was effectively physically 
and mentally nothing whatsoever that should be in an English king. This is reinforced further by writers placing the legend of Robin Hood in a historical time period, and weaving King John into this. It seemed to fit perfectly to have John pitted against Robin Hood, the nice easy construct of the goodies versus the baddies. This, however, arguably eschewed real studies of King John and his character. This would have an impact on writers like Rudyard Kipling, who were much a part of the 20th century as well. One such writer that connects and highlights this quite nicely is A.A. Milne, who wrote about King John in his own personal style. Milne would write about King John in his work King John's Christmas, which in itself on its first read seems an odd poem in name and in its entirety. It appeared in a book of 35 verses called Now We Are Six in 1927. Milne was most probably influenced by the wealth of scholarship and literature about King John. In the poem, he paints John as a poor character of a man, with the reoccurring line that starts off each verse that King John was not a good man. Milne highlights his loneliness. He stayed in every afternoon but no one came for tea, and his longing to feel loved, a while he stood there watching and envying them all. Milne crafts the poem beautifully, and paints the picture of John very much like a naughty and discredited child at Christmas, longing to be liked by other children and experience love, but most of all, a big red Indian rubber ball. There is very little in the poem that can be used to truly assess John, but it is an interesting poem that probably resonates with children on one level and adults reading it on the other. This poem is probably not as fondly remembered as his stories of Winnie the Pooh and his other wider work of poetry and literature. Yet, as with all writers, there is aspects of his life outside his own writings and characters that have largely been forgotten as well. One such incident that took place during the Second World War, and can only be interpreted, was a scathing attack on a fellow writer for his conduct with the Nazis. It was during the 1930s that Milne demonstrated a keen interest in delving into politics. He significantly shifted his attitudes to war with the onset of Britain's role in the Second World War. This is most evident in his published work. In 1934, he wrote the work Peace with honour, which took a strong pacifist stance. As he would write in response to this work, I want everybody to think that war is poison. Yet, his personal convictions about war would change as events took hold in the late 1930s. Firstly, Italy was growing stronger due to its actions against Abyssinia in 1936. Also, the onset of the Spanish Civil War and the rise of Hitler through his conquest of territory in Europe. His 1940 work, War with Honour, would see a retraction to a great degree of this mighty principle of pacifism. He would write that war is something of man's own fostering, and if all mankind renounces it, then it is no longer there. It is safe to assert that A. A. Milne was a pragmatist, viewing the situation and willing to change his perception of his own ideals. At the same time, 
During the decade of the 1920s and early 1930s, Milne had built a close literary friendship with the writer P.G. Woodhouse, who had by this time published and made his characters of Jeeves and Worcester household names. To say they had a friendship is interesting, as Milne, as an individual, was incompatible with many of those around him, being thin-skinned, austere, and lacking to a significant degree any sense of humour. By the mid-1930s, P.G. Woodhouse was going from strength to strength, and many accounts out there describe a sense of jealousy creeping over Milne as his literary star was beginning to wane. It would be P.G. Woodhouse that Milne would fall out with during the war. Woodhouse was in France when the Germans invaded in 1940. He decided to remain in his seaside home in Le Touquet in northern France when the Germans moved into the town. Woodhouse was classified by the German authorities as an enemy alien and was effectively interned first in Belgium and then at Tost in Germany. While interned, he agreed to make radio broadcasts, recounting his experiences in the camp. As he stated in his own words on his reasoning, my reason for broadcasting was a simple one. In the course of my period of internment, I received hundreds of letters of sympathy from American readers. I was anxious to let them know how I got on. To many, like A.A. Mill, his actions with the German authorities in performing these broadcasts were dangerous and tantamount to treason, seen to be working with the Germans. Using the newspapers to attack him, Milne would write that naivety can be carried too far. He has been given a good deal of licence in the past, but I fancy that now his licence will be withdrawn. Milne disregarded that it was simply a humorist's take on making light-hearted fun against those that interned him, instead citing it as infantile and demonstrated a complete lack of understanding of politics. Milne held little regard for the credibility of Woodhouse. To return to the reasoning, Woodhouse held for his actions by stating that, of course, I ought to have had to see sense that it was a loony thing to do, to use the stuff, but I didn't. I suppose prison life saps the intellect. After the war ended in 1945, the British government put forward an investigation to state categorically how far Woodhouse had been guilty of working with the Germans. He was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing. What is interesting, and quite logical to see happening, is Woodhouse getting his own back, his revenge with Milne. He would utter the words, Nobody could be more anxious than myself, should he trip over a bootlace and break his bloody neck. The relationship, however strong it had once been, was irretrievably damaged. Interestingly, Woodhouse himself never returned to England. It almost seems that he had, had fled to the United States when things looked precarious in Great Britain, but arguably never did it when the Nazis invaded the northern part of France. He would be classed as a naturalised citizen of the US from 1955. Which leads nicely into our next degree of separation with a the theme of naturalisation. 
Naturalisation is essentially acquiring citizenship or a degree of nationality within a given country. Wildhouse himself became part of the way of life of New York, never wanting or needing to return to his native country. However, for a particular group of people in the United States, naturalisation never happened, however long they had worked or lived there. Our fourth degree is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which significantly restricted, to a great degree, immigration into the country. Immigration had effectively been happening since the gold rush that swept the western seaboard in 1848. Initially, those Chinese labourers who had come over to help with the excavation of gold and to seek fortune of their own accord were tolerated. However, as more and more gold was being discovered, and it became harder to find, animosity and discrimination set in hard. As early as 1858, the state of California did try to bar the entry of Chinese immigration, but it was soon brushed aside by the Supreme Court. Rutherford B. Hayes vetoed a bill that legislated to exclude the Chinese. The year of 1882 would be the turning point in the build-up to the Chinese Exclusion Act. California reformed its constitution to categorically affirm that the state government had a say on who could and could not reside in the state. The presidency of Chester A. Arthur, from the moment he assumed the position after James Garfield's assassination, spent a great deal of time with the issue of immigration. Interestingly, Arthur was sympathetic to the position of the Chinese living in the United States. Evidence of this is his refusal to accept a bill proposed in 1882 that was to limit the number of Chinese immigrants coming into the country. It also banned labourers from China for entering the US in a 20-year period. Lastly, and most damning of all, the bill refused to grant citizenship to those Chinese men and women and children that already lived in the US, in areas such as San Francisco. Arthur felt it was his duty to veto the bill, as he deemed it undemocratic and hostile to the spirit of our institutions. He most also quite pragmatic and probably realising that this would insult China, who he had just dealt with and signed a trade agreement. Yet the issue at heart of Arthur's presidency was that he was a constitutionally weak president, having assumed the role after an assassination. Not only that, but he was not valued by the public. One historian highlights the level of mistrust and the expectation of little an Arthur presidency would offer. He had not been a congressman, he had not been a senator, he had been a member of the spoil system, he was a low politician by anybody's idea of it. The idea that this man would ascend to the presidency gave the public a sense of revulsion. With this in mind, all Arthur had at his disposal was the presidential veto. To understand why the Chinese Exclusion Act was signed, is inextricably entwined with this. No matter how much the President wanted to veto a bill, his hands were tied by the pressure from the public. As his biographer Ruth T. Feldman states, the bill was popular with the public and Arthur felt pressured to sign it. So, on May the 6th, the President reluctantly signed the Chinese Exclusion Act. The act that was passed and excluded Chinese skilled and unskilled labourers from entering the 
country lasted for 10 years. A knock-on effect of this was actually as damning to those Chinese inhabitants in the United States as those wanting to come in. The act effectively made them aliens by denying them citizenship within their own country. L. Ling Chi sums up this perfectly. Up until 1882, America was open to everybody who wanted to come. We welcomed everybody. The only people that were excluded by law at that time were prostitutes, lepers and morons. And in 1882, we added the Chinese to that list. An interesting cartoon was released after the passage of the Act. Incidentally, this cartoon accompanies the podcast. The cartoon shows a Chinaman sat upon a crate forlorn outside a solid metal door, with the words emblazoned on top, Golden Gate of Liberty. The hypocrisy is drawn further by this list that features outside the door, which reads, Notice, Communist, Nihilist, Socialist, Fenian and Hoodlum, Welcome, but no admittance to the Chinaman. Accompanying this caption, it says, The only one barred out. Enlightened American statesman. We must draw the line somewhere, you know. The cartoon shows that despite this great nation preaching liberty and welcoming people to its shores, to experience its liberty, the buck stops at the Chinaman. The boxes around him read order and peace, and they are the reasons why he is excluded, yet the same has not been applied to the other groups. Critics would mount as the country grew in size, prestige and power through the 1880s, and 1890s, yet it would not be until 1943 when it was finally repealed. In many ways, history has forgotten the presidency of the 21st president, Chester A. Arthur, yet a lot of studies have been made at the way certain ethnic groups have been treated in this so-called land of liberty. This in itself says a lot. Chester A. Arthur himself would not run for a second term. He would eventually succumb to Bright's disease in 1886. Many notable figures have suffered from Bright's disease. One particular writer that shared the elements of the disease with Chester Arthur was the Irish author Abraham Stoker. Bram Stoker, a name forever associated with a significant work of literature, Dracula. Yet it could be argued that Bram Stoker was not principally seen as a novelist during his early life. After his marriage in 1878 to his wife Florence, they moved together to London. It was at this point that Abraham became acting manager of the Lyceum Theatre, after meeting the famed actor Sir Henry Irving. Writer Michael Kilgareth, who has written himself extensively on the relationship between the two men, cites that Stoker first encountered Irving when he was watching him play the role of Captain Absolute in The Rivals at the Dublin Theatre in 1867. A physical meeting would only come in 1876 after a performance of Hamlet, in which Stoker wrote a review in the Dublin Evening Mail, which caught the attention of Irving, or possibly the opportunity to court some publicity from such a meeting. This meeting for Stoker would send him in the direction of working in theatre in the capacity of a managerial role, rather than as a writer. December would be a runaway success for Irving, and it would be a hectic month for Stoker, seeing the front of house while the theatre put on a revival of Hamlet. By all accounts, the production saw lavish praise and acclaim from the people and the press. Yet Stoker's time as the manager of the Lyceum 
would not give him the big break that he deserved. It would be fair to say that much of this was to do with the creative pecking order that beset any grand theatre, and the Lyceum was no exception. In his work on Irving, Kelgariff tells us how Henry Irving was always seen as the accolade, the crown jewel in the Lyceum crown. He would appear on the front page of all programmes, and would also see Stoker relegated down a peck or two in the whole rolling order of things. Yet people would note the praise for Stoker's work. The Chicago Daily News in 1888 would state that Mr Irving's great success in this country has been due to a very considerable extent to the shrewd management of Bram Stoker. We know of no manager that was more vigilant, more audacious than he. Despite this, 1896 would be the year of departure for Abraham Stoker. Irving would go off the boil with an accident after a performance at his home, and the Lyceum would be riddled with financial problems, having run at a loss for many years. In many ways, Stoker had not kept up his own finances. Probably not helped by the salary he was earning as a manager for the theatre. Nevertheless, even though he would quit being manager two years later, it was at this point that he started to gear his energies to that work of his, that he has forever been remembered. It is questionable how much inspiration for that novel came from his days working in the theatre, and in particular, Henry Irving. Something this podcast will leave to further research. In many ways, Bram Stoker is often remembered for Dracula, and rightly so, but there are other aspects of his career, such as the manager of the Lyceum, which could have taken us in different paths. Interestingly, later on in Stoker's career, he took a keen interest in science with his 1909 novel The Lady of the Shroud, taking elements of early science fiction, according to many literary critics. Which links quite nicely to another passionate science writer, Sir Francis Bacon, the author of many scientific works that were widely read after his death in the 1630s and 1640s. And there we have it. Six Degrees of Francis Bacon. By starting our chain with King John and the Magna Carta, this podcast has found strong and tenuous links between authors such as A.A. Milne and Bram Stoker to 19th century US presidents and immigration acts. In the next episode, our starting link will be with a well-known silent comedian born in the same month as Adolf Hitler, and striking a strange physical resemblance at key points in his life to that man. <laughs>